This is UCD Business Impact, a new podcast series from the UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. As you know, on this podcast, we try to stay, certainly try to be as diverse and global as possible, but generally, as befits what's been going on with the crisis, we've been broadly speaking to people in lockdown here in Ireland, in rooms in Dublin and other parts of the country, but we're now really believe that we should go a little bit further on this occasion and go stateside and talk to somebody who's got really a remarkable story. And I think one sentence alone will illustrate it. He went from the the bombed out streets of Belfast in the 70s, and they literally were at that stage from the Falls Road. Many decades later, he ended up finding himself running the global operations of KPMG as their former chief operations officer. Of course, one of the big four in the world, one of the largest accountancy practices. And that man is Sean T. Kelly, and he's joining me now to give his perspective from Florida, where he's based these days, on what's happening in the US, in the economy, in the business sector, both small firms and big firms. And also, he's more happily to have his benefit as a member of the North American UCD Smurfit Advisory Board. And as we head towards July the 4th, we thought it would be the appropriate time to talk to him. So you're very welcome to um, the podcast, Sean. Emmett, thank you. Delighted to have the opportunity to chat. Yes, there's a lot going on. We only had half an hour, so we've got to uh, chew through a lot of material. So the two of us will try and make our way through as best we can. But I want to go back a little bit first. Um, I did tantalize the audience a bit with this amazing personal story that you have going from Belfast to Falls Road in the 1970s. Just tell me a little bit, and I know, again, <laughs> we're going to compress a lot of your life story here, uh, how you went from there to those big boardrooms with KPMG later in your career. Uh, thanks, and uh, you know you're very, very kind and generous in your introduction. There, it, it's not you know I didn't start out with this great thirty-year plan that I would, say I would end up in New York as the global CEO of KPMG. Sort of took it you know chunks at a time. You know I'm a BCom graduate, um, trained with KPMG in Dublin, became a chartered accountant. So that was the first goal. I had the opportunity to do a rotation to the San Francisco office once I qualified, and really just took opportunities as they came. And I think. As I look back, you know, the two or three things that I would advise, you know, all, all people, young people starting their careers, don't be afraid to take the opportunity. Don't be afraid to, you know, experience different things, different cultures, which in today's environment might seem difficult with the constraints on travel. But you'll either embrace it, enjoy it, or get it out of your system. But going to San Francisco it just opened up those opportunities. And I was lucky I was back. In Belfast in the 90s, and again, was a, a difficult time, you know, not, not as bad as the 70s, but some difficult, difficult times, and, and learned a lot, uh, learned a lot of different skills, and then had, again, the opportunity to go back to the U.S. in 1999, and it just, it, it's a bit like the sporting analogy, I would, I think if, you, if you focus on your next game, you're going to lose the game you're playing, so I believe if, you, if you're, you're, you're working hard at the role you're in, Good, good organizers, good leaders will recognize it and say, you know what, we've got a good athlete there. We have this opportunity. And just opportunities came up. I was, people tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, we like what you're doing. Would you be interested in this? And, you know, some of them, in 2005, I took over running the tax practice in the U.S. And, you know, the, the first few weeks I was wondering how I made the right decision. 
because um, you know have I the skills? Can I do this? Uh, but you work through it, and you know it's a, it's a lot of it's about the team. So it's really just working hard, being flexible, and taking the opportunities when they come up, and building relationships. And I think that's even more important. Yeah, and Sean, in terms of the troubles that were going on at the time, um, if they hadn't been going on at the time, in other words, were they a push factor for you to try other things, or were they just sort of a backdrop? It, it, or you know, did they actually force you to look elsewhere, or do you ever ask yourself, looking back? What if I didn't have that period and the troubles in the Northern Ireland? Would I have stayed there and would have life have taken a different course? Uh, that's a really good question. I don't think so. You know, at the time, it was a backdrop. When you look back, you realize the impact it had. I think it gave me a different perspective on what was important, what was not. And also, one of the great tenets I have about leaders is, and particularly, you know, I've been in the state, you know, since I came back to the States in 99, I've seen the dot-com bust September 11th the global financial crisis, and now this. Um, and one of the things I learned is don't panic. You know, leader, you don't want leaders panicking. You want a sense of urgency. But we'll work through it. And I think that was part of what was built into our DNA growing up in, in Belfast in the 70s. I actually went to Dublin for two reasons. I went to UCD. One, um, I played Gaelic football for Antrim, which I know for most other counties, probably not, you know, when I look at it, well, <laughs> that's not that big a deal. Um, so I enjoyed playing Gaelic football, and UCD had a great team at the time. And I had, I had ambitions to play Sigerson Cup. Um, I'm not uh, people who know me. I'm not the biggest uh, of guys, but I was quick. Uh, trouble is, I came down. I didn't get any bigger, and I got slower. So I never quite made the Sigerson team. But that was a draw. And the second one was I, I knew about the BCom, and it was about the same time as they were thinking about introducing what was then became the Diploma in Professional Accounting which would have given me accelerated, you know, into the Charter Accountants qualification. So that was more the drive to, to move to Dublin, not to get out of Belfast. Having said that, moving to Dublin did sort of, you know, you know kindle the, the wanderlust and say, you know what, there, there are places out there and we should, we should try. And you eventually tried the US, as you said, starting in San Francisco. You've moved in, obviously, over to New York. You're based now in Florida. You also often work out of Connecticut. So you're, you're, you're well-versed in that. Yeah, and, sp- and I spent five years in Chicago. Yeah, just to throw that in. So you're, you're well-versed in yeah. the, the regional disparities. And we do forget in Europe how regional America is. Each, each one, the coasts, they're different to inland. Everything, every single state had its own dynamics, had its own population that, and culture and so on. I mean, looking at it, uh, this COVID crisis, let's just talk about that for a few minutes because it's, it's a very moving feast. Even as I talk to you, cases are up in some states, down in others, sort of um, plateauing in other places. So I don't want to get you down in the weeds of individual uh, COVID examples and so on. But looking at the economy, there's a lot of people looking at, at it from outside saying there's two downturns going on here. There's um, Main Street, and I mean literally the street, you know, bricks and mortar stores, the smaller retailers, the hospitality sector, bars, pubs, the small firms really getting crushed by the, the, the drop in demand. Bigger companies, multinationals, you know, well-established corporates seem to be weathering the storm reasonably well, and the stock market, as a result, is kind of reflecting that. Is that how you see it? Do you see it very much a two-speed kind of the damage that's going on is happening very differently and on two different tracks? I think Emma is probably more multi-speed. I think you're right. There is, you know, this the bigger companies are are weathering it better than maybe Main Street, and because of all, I think that the factors, uh, you know, listeners would understand. The impact on retail, you know, entertainment, impacting those smaller businesses. But even in some of the broader industries, I, I think it's also 
the strength of management and, and the companies. And I do think, and this is a trend, that scale going forward will be important. Uh, I, I think the stronger, larger companies will be in a better position to weather the storm for a whole reason. So part of it might be the markets that are impacting are creating a different speed of um, recession, but part of it is the strength of uh, the, the, the organizations. I think overall, look, we are we are in a recession, right? It's you can't have over 20, 20 million people unemployed, negative forty percent negative GDP growth, and say you're in a, a a strong economy. I think part of the market, and I'm, I'm by no means a, a market predictor or or an analyst, but I do think the markets are taking in more of a longer term view of where we're going to get to, rather than where we actually are today. Uh, because just the factors I just went through. Uh, but it is clear that this is impacting different either sectors or scale of businesses differently. And we're still figuring out, and companies are still figuring out, what's the end game here? What is the future? It's been very much focused on, okay, let's, let's, let's stabilize our business facing this. Let's see how we're going to operate during the pandemic. Let's see what we think the short to medium term is going to look like but also, and I'm seeing this more and more now, taking that longer term strategic view of what is our business going to look like going forward. And some of those businesses are looking forward saying, there is no future for our business and we have to you know, take that on board as well. So I think there's multiple facets to where we are today and a lot of uncertainty. And Sean, this is, uh, we're hovering around July the 4th. This is the time when all Americans traditionally take stock, you know, kind of test the temperature of the nation. I mean, with the cases rising, you know, the election obviously looming in November, I mean, how would you describe your living there, but you also are well plugged into Irish America? I know you're on the Ireland funds and, and the board of CRH and other companies. How do you sort of see the mood of America at the moment, leaving out individual personalities who we, we both uh, know? How, how do you assess it? I think, look, it, it's no doubt it's a difficult time. And you layer in the racial tensions that we have at the moment. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty. I think there's a lot of nervousness even. I wouldn't go as far as saying fear of the future, but you know, there's still a lot unknown. And, and, and I don't think that's a surprise. Like we're still learning about the impact of this virus and what that means. So I do think, um, and, and I think you know, the listeners back in Ireland will know this better than anybody in terms of as you come out of lockdown, that fatigue, there is a sense, and I think you're seeing it in some of the reactions where the states that have opened up, there is that, it's probably hope that, you know, we've got this behind us because everybody's so exhausted. We've been, you know, stuck indoors that they're, they're just coming out and saying, look, I want to get on with my life. I want to move forward. But knowing that in the background, but we're still not quite sure that, well, we, we don't know if and when we will get through this, when we'll get a vaccine, when we'll get treatments. So that uncertainty. But I've no doubt, you know, a couple of things. One, I've no doubt the U.S. economy will bounce back. Corporations will adapt. But, and I think people will take the opportunity to, to celebrate and reflect on um, the good things. And it is, like a lot of the U.S. holidays, a good time for families to get together where they can. So I think you, you will see some of that picking up within the constraints. 
but it is it's a difficult time and it's 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 still a worrying time and one of the most interesting parts i suppose sean is is the way companies are acting and how they're conducting themselves in the the public square as it used to be called um so when you talk about black lives matter what's been very i suppose surprising too is how many companies have come forward and been prepared to say something about that kind of area which traditionally they would shy away from what do you make of that uh, that's a great great point Emmett. And, I, and i think something i have seen across the board in all the aspects of businesses i think the pandemic is accelerating some of the trends that we were seeing and i think I sometimes hate using this term because it's a bit sounds a bit flippant. You know, never waste a good crisis, but it is given the ability to make changes that were maybe difficult from a cultural standpoint and in a business perspective. You know, use of uh, like Zoom that we're using now, Emmett. Um, looking at how we use our workspace, travel, all of that. I think you're going to be seeing where our supply chains are. You're going to see an acceleration of trends that we're seeing the the adoption of machine learning, artificial intelligence. I think that's similar to the, the point you're making around the role of business in the broader community. In August of last year, Jimmy Diamond, the CEO of uh, JP Morgan, when he was chair of the Business Roundtable, which represents the, the, the top 200 CEOs in the US, made the statement that shareholder maximizing shareholder value is no longer the main objective of corporations. And I think as we moved into the pandemic, we've actually seen, to your point, how businesses, not just in the U.S., but globally have reacted from, you know, distilleries making hand sanitizer to companies donating PPE to, you know, looking at how, and, and how their, the, the current situation is impacting their people and their customers. And that's one thing I've seen in the companies I deal with. The number one discussion point to start was about people. Now, that might sound again, Oh, yeah, that's, you know, big corporations would say that. I truly do see a sea change in terms of putting priority on safety, uh, on people, on customers, you know, not wanting to re, you've seen businesses not wanting to reopen until they believe it's safe, both for employees and for customers. And I think, think you're seeing that also in the response to Black Lives Matter is realizing that business has a huge part to play. And back to my acceleration point, a recognition that, you know, for the last number of years, has been a recognition that inclusion and diversity is no longer a nice to have. It's a business imperative. This is clearly accelerating it. And that's why you're seeing companies reacting the way they are, because they, they've realized they're not moving quick enough. They need to do this and they need to play a bigger role in the communities in which they operate. And do you think the CEOs are going to be under renewed pressure here? I mean, generally, I'm like, we're all generalizing here, just the nature of, of a podcast, but, you know, CEOs generally took care of shareholders. You know, they delivered for their shareholders, other people in the organization, the CSR department, they worried about these wider stakeholders. Maybe you had someone working in community relations and so on. Do you think, um, I suppose there's two questions, do you think CEOs will be able to kind of balance those wider interests you're talking about? Are they equipped to do that? And secondly, will their ordinary job of delivering for shareholders, can they uh, make that take a bit of a backseat to bring those other interest groups in? And is that going to be actually possible for a CEO who's uh, leading a Wall Street company to actually do that? Well, I think they have to, Emmett. And, I, and it's interesting, your point's very valid about you know the pressure from the shareholders. But we're seeing more and more the shareholders are pressing for that change, You know, be it not just 
from an inclusion and a diversity standpoint, but also from a sustainability standpoint. So carbon footprint renewals, that has been building and you have vast investors who are, are, who are challenging CEOs and management teams to move forward, you know, the Paris, Paris Agreement, all of those broader social aspects are being driven by shareholders as well. So that, that in some ways might make it easier. You might say, well, then it's easier to balance. Mm. But these are difficult issues. So I think you're right. It's going to be a challenge for CEOs and management teams and boards. But I think it's, they're going to have to do it. And I do, have seen a trend. I think CEOs are more sensitive to it and are moving to that next stage of this is just part of how we do business. It's not one of these you know, fads anymore. This is really important. And they're also getting pressure from their employees to be socially responsible, and they recognize that. So I think that pressure is built. The pandemic, I think because people have rallied around, if you will, and come together to deal with this, has accelerated. And then you layer on Black Lives Matter and the race saying, look, we have have a big role to play. We need to do this, and we're being pressured. You know, not pressured. We're, We're aligned with our shareholders and our employees and our broader community to do this. Now, Sean, as I mentioned, you're on the board of CRH, you're on the Ireland uh, funds as well, but you also sit on a number of boards of non-profits. What do you think is going to happen in that sector now? Uh, are these changes, they would seem on the surface to be good for, for that sector, but maybe there's something I'm not seeing. So so what do you think about that part of the economy? Uh, it's a great question, Amit. And, you know, one of the things is, is talk to businesses and we look at it is all, I think, and I think this is right. I don't think it's, it's a... a uh, a throwaway comment. I think all business models are going to change in some way, shape, or form. Be it some business models will be no longer viable and will go away, or you'll have new and innovative business models whose time has come, and you'll have others that you know they'll be tweaking along the way. Like, but all business models change, and I think that also applies to the not-for-profit sector. And you're absolutely right; the demand has never been greater. And it's just moved so quick. I'll give you a great example. One of the, one of the examples, or one of the organisations on the ground in Ireland we support is Food Cloud, and we've supported them. We being the Ireland Funds have supported them from a number of years. Great innovative organisation. You know, takes takes access food and and basically is is the conduit to get it to people in need. They've been around a number of years. They were maturing. They were becoming self sufficient. In some ways, demand was going down a little bit. They were very stable. We never thought we would get a call from Food Cloud to go, like, we really need help. So automatic, just overnight change in that environment. And and what, what, what were the changes? One, a huge spike in demand, right? You more people maybe out of a job, couldn't afford food. You weren't, you know, the ability to be able to access the food and, and just deliver it, um, given the restrictions. So I think, that was a great example of that business model for not-for-profits is changing. One, you're right, in certain areas, there's going to be bigger demand. And it's not just in food. It's the whole ambit. One of the things the pandemic has showed us is, you know, nobody's immune from this. And it's highlighting some of the inequalities. So domestic abuse, access to education, um, the elderly, all of those are being impacted. So a big, huge increase in demand for services. And then, and then on the, I suppose, from our, our business standpoint, Emmett, on the revenue side, some of the old ways of raising money, you know, collecting tins, 
garden fates, big dinners, you name it, that's going to be challenged at least in the short term and maybe the longer term. And you're going into a period, I think the next few years are going to be difficult from an economic standpoint. So the amount of funding that might be available to go to the non-for-profit. So I do think they're, they're going to face a challenging number of years. But it, like business, they're reacting. They're looking at, do we have virtual fundraising? How do we efficiently use technology to deliver our services? And I do believe corporations are stepping up as well to say, look, this is part of what we need to do to our earlier point and contributing to our communities is how we support that sector. So I think you're right. It will become more and more important, but the challenge will be how they can uh, operate uh, uh, and and have the funding and resources to do it. Yeah. And a lot of them, a lot of them complain about the the regulatory burden, the compliance burden on them. They don't have enough staff. They don't have enough uh, expertise available. So that that's, that's an issue for them as well, isn't it? It it is. And it's, it's a great point. And I think this is where, I've seen an evolution of the support for not-for-profit. There's the term that, you know, the term, the three T's, you know, your time, treasure, and your talent. I suppose it used to be the treasure was, okay, you know, I'll put money in the trocaro box or I'll write a check. But now, and I think particularly the younger generation are giving their time to these organizations and they're giving their talents. You know, you take someone like myself or other chartered accountants, that expertise, financial expertise, governance expertise, bringing that, that's invaluable. So it's not just writing the checks, it's getting involved and bringing that support because you're absolutely right. And I, and I think the need for governance is even more important. I know one of the things is, as we looked at how we could get funding and between our donor advised, which is donors who come to us and say, we want to give to organizations on our own resources. You know, we've given over $2 million uh, in the last few months into covid initiatives in Ireland but you want to make sure one you're getting it to those organizations that can make a difference and two that it will get to where you think it will and you have the proper governance and controls around that and you're right that's that's going to be part of the the balancing act for for not-for-profits. Now Sean I've asked you to get your your stethoscope out to listen to the, the heartbeat of the U.S. economy let's talk a little bit about Ireland and the bridge that links the two countries I really like to hear your perspective. I get a sense that there's obviously, as I said, an election coming. So politically, things are, are charged. Um, we've got a lot of Chinese uh, investment coming into Ireland. So that's kind of a new element that we haven't had before. The U.S. has been our key source, you know, overwhelmingly so. So the, the picture is kind of changing. Um, a lot of graduates come from the U.S. into Ireland. So there's all these linkages there. How do you assess the, the kind of connections between Ireland and America? What's the state of that relationship at the moment? Well, I think to understand it, Emma, you really have to step back, and you, you, you touched upon it, you're right. I think from a, uh, an overall global perspective, uh, there, there has been a move over the last number of years to more insular uh, view from, from, from countries moving away from sort of the, the global economy aspect of it. I, I think it's, it's a reality that the current pandemic will reinforce some of those, particularly around security of supply chain, um, controlling uh, virus coming in. So the quarantines that we see, some of the you know, the travel bans, the visa ban that was announced in the last week, I think is on you know somewhat understandable around trying to control the virus. But it, it's building upon this um, closing of borders rather than more opening of the global economy. Um, said that, I think. Business is still larger businesses. I think all businesses have a global uh, component are, are looking how to navigate 
that. But I think in the context of the U.S. and Ireland, it, it does create, a, uh, I think, a great opportunity because of the, obviously, the historical links. But I also believe, one, how Ireland has handled the virus. Two, the progress that was already made around you know, the, 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 the FDI that's already in Ireland from the U.S., as we all know, the Pfizer's, the Apple's, et cetera, et cetera, that you've got a, 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 a base there. So as U.S. companies are re-examining their supply chain, and I use the supply chain in the broader sense, it's not just, okay, where do I get my widgets? It's, you know, where's my develop, software development talent? Where's my finance talent, et cetera, et cetera. I think Ireland is uniquely positioned because of those, th- those uh, historical bonds, the language, the time zone, all of that, the way we've handled it. I do think uh, that Ireland has a great opportunity to be a key, an even more key player in U.S. supply chains in the broadest sense than we've had. Uh, but that'll take time as, as or- I think organizations are still looking at what does the future look like and what is the supply chain. But there's a, you know, a great opportunity. And that's even for, I don't know how long we're into the podcast now, Emmett, but we haven't even mentioned Brexit. And that's out there you know, with all the focus on the topics that we've talked about. You still have Brexit, access to the European Union, those, those elements. So I think, and I tend, to be, I tend to be more of an optimist than a pessimist, although somebody once told me the difference between an optimist and a pessimist is the pessimist has all the facts. I do think that there's great opportunity. And I also, from what I can see um, happening now, uh, organizations like you know, the IDA, Enterprise Ireland, see that and are already working on the ground to build those, you know, start having those conversations. I mean, I suppose the, the interesting piece we hear this word reshoring, and that's kind of the new looming threat to the Ireland FDI model, but it doesn't really get defined. So as you say, does that mean bring the supply chains away from Asia? Does it mean Europe would still be part of that? You know, nobody really either knows or has been prepared to say what that concept would play out like. No, I think you're right. And there was, you know, there's always been that, you know, what do you need onshore? What do you need nearshore? What do you need offshore? And I think you're absolutely right. And we're now at this, if you go back to where I think we are in the stages of this, where it was, okay, let's, let's, let's just stabilize our business in the face of this. Let's see how we're going to operate. Let's now start to look at the, you know, the, the medium to long term. That's happening now. And those discussions that you're talking about, those analyses are starting to happen. And this is exactly the time to be, from an from a FDI standpoint, to be having those discussions. Look, I, I know this from experience. It's as easy to get from New York to Dublin as to get from New York to San Francisco. Um, in normal time, well, even today with, with uh, the, some of the restrictions. So I think absolutely it will be part of that and a recognition of the ability to access skills, whatever it is, may need, you can't have everything onshore. I mean, in terms of the sales pitch on, I mean, you've worked in Ireland, you've worked in the States and, and all over the States. What should Ireland's pitch be? Would you would you say? Uh, look, I'm not going to I'm not going to think I can tell tell the Irish government how to pitch Ireland. I, I, they've done a great job of that so far, but I do think there are some unique selling points in terms of the you know the basics, the language, time zones not that big big an issue, the access to Europe. But you know, I think getting back to you, and this is uh, I think this is something particularly from a UCD and wearing my Smurfit hat. The skills and the talent that we have coming out of our, our education system is, is world class in areas 
that will be in demand. You look at the changes with the move to technology, with the move to a lot of online, be it retail, meetings, et cetera, et cetera. Things like cybersecurity, things like fintech, then into the, you know, even into the healthcare, because healthcare is going to uh, change significantly as well. Obviously, going through this, Ireland, and with the skills that we have, is extremely well positioned. The pitch I would put in there, Emmett, is but to be able to maintain that and keep it relevant, we need to be investing in education, including third level education, to make sure we still have those skills and, and just the, the business friendly uh, environment. I think they're all big selling points to, to, to U.S. corporations as they're looking globally where they need to have their, their operations. So if, I, if I'm hearing you right, it, it's a lot. Of, a lot of this is about re-emphasizing or, or reminding the, the the U.S. marketplace that you know these things remain in place. There's a lot of change going on globally, but we still have these attributes. Right, and look, let, let's not lose sight. It is viewed as a, uh, a safe location in a pretty turbulent world. For all of it, Ireland is seen as as, as stable, safe environment. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's roaring seas all around us politically, socially, um, and in some ways culturally. So you're, you're absolutely right yeah. to say that. And that does stand up to the, the test of scrutiny. It's been great talking to you, Sean. We've got through a lot. Um, July the 4th, I hope you get to spend it with friends and family. Uh, do you expect to get back to Ireland anytime soon? Um, we hope. Uh, we, we, we have a house in Donegal, Emmett, and we, normally this time of the year we'd be back there. Um, so I'm, I'm missing it. Um, we'd hope, obviously, when they're, they're you know, they're travel comes back to normal we would get back we still have my wife's from Derry so we've a lot of family back there so the hope would be as soon as practical to get back and obviously some as you mentioned some of the things I'm involved in hopefully we'll be able to meet in person and a lot of those meetings will be in Dublin so really looking forward to, to getting back. I think um, Zoom is great, but uh, after a while, face to face contact really we really do start to uh, pine for it don't we? We do, we do. I think, look, Zoom, Zoom and the like can handle a lot of things, and I think that'll be a big change. But there's still some things you have to be sitting across the table and having the personal interaction, which, as we all know, is one of the strengths, again, of Ireland. And I think we, 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 we need to get back to that because we're really good at it. Eye to eye has always been our skill, hasn't it? Sean, thank you yeah. very much for talking to us. I know you're, you're hitting the road soon, so thanks to you for coming on ahead of that it's been a great conversation a lot to get in a letter from america literally appreciate it very much of you has given us the time and thanks for coming on the podcast Emma, thank you very much